Good morning. Good morning to those in Europe and good afternoon to those of you joining us from Asia. I'm delighted to welcome you all to this online discussion on the Middle Corridor. What are the economic opportunities and challenges? My name is Hans-Peter Lankes and I am the Deputy Chief Executive and Managing Director at ODI. And I would like to say a special thank you to the co-organizers of today's event, the Asian Development Bank Institute, ADBI, for their efforts in putting this event together with us. Now, before we go any further, I'd like to draw your attention to the fact that today's discussion is being streamed in both English and Russian using simultaneous translation. You will see an icon on the panel at the bottom that says interpretation. You can click this icon to choose your preferred language. A message should now appear in the chat function confirming these instructions in both Russian and English. So today's discussion comes at an important time. The Middle Corridor, also known as the Trans-Caspian International Transport Route, is a multilateral institutional development linking the containerized rail freight transport networks of China and the European Union through Central Asia, the Caucasus, Turkey, and Eastern Europe. The Middle Corridor is the shortest route from China's Pacific coast to Europe, and its significance has been rising in the last few years. The appeal, the appeal of this middle corridor is growing, but a variety of operational obstacles will have to be removed in order to realize its potential and the long-term benefits for participating nations. So it is crucial, and that's what our meeting will focus on today, to analyze the economic costs and opportunities associated with overcoming the infrastructure challenges along the route. So there is a lot of potential, but the economics matter. And that's what we're gonna be focusing on today. In case you are not already familiar with us, ODI is a leading global affairs think tank. Today's event is hosted by our Global Risks and Resilience Program, which promotes risk-informed development and works with policymakers and businesses across different sectors and countries, supporting them to understand risks, acknowledge trade-offs, and build resilience in a rapidly changing world. So thanks for bearing with me for that little bit of product placement here. And now I'm delighted that we have such an excellent group of speakers here with us today to discuss these pressing issues. <clears throat> Unfortunately, Dean Tetsushi Sonobe, the CEO of ADBI, who was going to provide opening remarks, had to pull out at the last minute due to illness. And the same is true for Guljan Argin Bayeva, who uh, was also going to be with us from Kazakhstan, and she had to pull out. So we end up having um, a bit more time on the panel, time for questions and answers, uh, but it is, uh, it is unfortunate that uh, they are not going to be with us and sharing their expertise. Now, let's go to um, two presentations first to start our session. And for that, let me introduce Idil Bilgic, Al-Paslan, who is an Associate Director in the Strategy and Delivery Department at the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development, the EBRD. Idil is an economist with 15 years of experience in macroeconomic policy, development economics, and private sector development. And she recently led a study on sustainable transport connections between Europe and Central Asia, which was published in June 2023, so very timely. Idil will present the findings of the study in her presentation. 
Now, Idel, over to you, please. Thank you. Thank you very much, Hans. Um, so I'm very delighted to be here today and um, have the opportunity to present the results um, to, to the audience. Let me quickly share my screen and then we'll be able to start, hopefully. So if you can just let me know if you see the screen. So yeah. thank you. So as Hans said, um, the EBRD has led a study which was funded by the European Union um, throughout 2021 and 2022 um, in order to identify the most sustainable transport connections between Europe and Central Asia. Of course, the landscape has changed a lot um, between when we started the project and when we ended it. Um, so the significance of the Middle <coughs> Corridor or the Trans-Caspian Transport Network has increased significantly. Um, over the last two years, let's put it that way. So our study is indeed um, quite timely and uh, it's been very well received by the private sector, by the public authorities across Central Asia, but also in Caucasus and Europe as well. So um, as guided by ODI, um, I'd like to focus the four main discussion topics here today. One of them is, of course, the opportunities that are presented by the middle corridor and what happens if they develop it further. The second one is the challenges. What are the um, barriers against the development or materialization of all these opportunities? The third one is the economic costs of infrastructure development. What are the actual costs that we are looking at? And then, of course, the last question relates to how can it be financed, all these costs, if you want to see a major development along the middle corridor. So um, we, our study has focused on Central Asia and uh, what to do in Central Asia in order to support the development of the middle corridor or the Trans-Caspian Transport Network. So we haven't looked at or assessed Caucasus or Turkey as much in detail. But still, uh, of course, we had a very good idea about the operating environment because ultimately, if you develop a corridor, you have to look at the whole section in order to assess whether it will be functional or whether it will um, have good impact on the users. Having said that, um, if you, I mean, I'm 100% sure everybody here in the audience has seen multiple maps of middle corridor. You see it goes through Kazakhstan and then all the way to Caucasus and Turkey or Black Sea. But if you look in detail into the middle corridor, there are three alternatives that can be assessed and that can be prioritized in terms of development. The first one is the northern alternative, which goes through northern Kazakhstan. And it starts from the Dostik border crossing point with China and then goes towards Aktau from the northern part of the country. The second alternative is the central network, central um, Trans-Caspian network which goes through southern Kazakhstan and then again combines with northern um, Kazakh route around Shalkarbeinel and then continues to Aktau port on the Caspian Sea. And this one starts um, at Horgos, which is the most recent border crossing point and the most functional border crossing point with China. And then the third alternative that we are looking at within the middle corridor is the southern alternative, which is through Kyrgyzstan, Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan and via Turkmenbashir port it connects to the Baku port in Azerbaijan again. So when we are talking about middle corridor, of course, there are different alternatives, different variations. But if one or if the countries need to focus their investments on sustainable connections, then they'll need to prioritize their investments along a route rather than 
ad hoc and spurred um, spatial different investments. So as part of our assessment, we identified and compared all these three routes against each other. I'll come to this point again in a second. But regardless of the route itself, of course, we know the middle corridor has multiple advantages vis-a-vis -vis the alternative corridors because it has a very strategic location and actually it is politically and from a safety perspective um, more feasible these days. It has... It provides direct access to Asia via the border crossing points. It provides direct access to economic centers in Central Asia as well. The existing network itself allows to access the economic centers in the region. Hence, it is possible to build upon the existing network as well. And of course, finally, it is a stable and sustainable alternative compared to the other routes. We believe if there'll be coordinated and joint action along the middle corridor, then the development of the middle corridor would offer benefits for everyone in the region. Not only one country, two countries, but everyone in the region. Um, first of all, the stronger regional coordination between the five Central Asian countries, as well as the other corridor countries, would allow the establishment of a single corridor manager, which can provide services along the route in a more efficient manner. Of course, this needs to be accompanied by unified tariffs and procedures so that the users will be able to deal with a single operator or single stakeholder so that they'll have more predictability. The second benefit that we can expect from this, from the development of the middle corridor is increased connectivity between the economic centers, which will actually have an impact on the lives of the people living in Central Asia because ultimately the development of the middle corridor, the routes, the network itself, accompanied by the development of economic structures would allow for higher regional inter international value chain integration, which is extremely important for Central Asia, especially considering the current export structure of the region. And of course, it's gonna provide more enhanced economic opportunities for the people in terms of employment and social access. Um, the third benefit that we can foresee or envisage is the improved border crossing practices should the middle corridor develop from a regional, with a regional perspective. It will lower the transaction costs and times that will benefit the people of the region, but also the users along the middle corridor, hence supporting um, prices or avoiding price increases who are using this, um, avoiding price increases for the users who are using this section. Because we know that the logistics costs can be as high as 15% of the final sale price of the good. So if you think about the length of the middle corridor and how much efficiency gains we can achieve should the corridor develops further, then you can understand the impact of potential, uh, impact of lowering the transaction costs and times. And of course, user-friendly procedures would allow the users to shift their preferences towards this corridor that would ultimately increase the volumes and support investments further. Um, again, if regional coordinated action materializes between the countries and the stakeholders, then that would also allow for enhanced long-term planning, which is very much needed considering the limited fiscal space and um, extremely high investment needs in the region from the, from the infrastructure perspective. 
So this would support improved project prioritization, but at the same time, coordinated implementation on different sides of every border on the map. And finally, of course, given the length of the middle corridor and the intentions to shift towards rail, it will support better environmental outcomes. It would support not only mitigation, but also climate change adaptation if resilient transport infrastructure can be built in the region. So we ultimately don't see this as a transport network development project, the middle corridor itself. But from the policy perspective, from the investor perspective, what we would like better to see is a regional development perspective for everyone that would benefit the region itself foremost, but then the users as well, both in Asia and in Europe. However, we are very much aware that currently there are many challenges that are limiting the realization of the desired outcomes. And these outcomes have been collected via user surveys throughout our study. And of course, as you all know, um, the key expected outcomes or desired outcomes are much better service quality, enhanced capacity, much better, um, sorry, much better competition and options through the involvement of private sector and uh, further network reach. But then at the same time, of course, the users would like to see enhanced interoperability between different network sections along the corridor. However, of course, these desired outcomes have been hampered by the challenges. And I'm not going to go into the details because I know other speakers will talk and we'll talk about these things. But we know that the tariffs are an issue, lack of a unified tariff. Regulatory harmonization is still not in place, so that creates uncertainty for the users. There are capacity limitations in different nodes of the network. One node allows for much higher capacity, but then ultimately the corridor performs as much as its lowest or weakest link, right? So we have to think about it as a corridor rather than ad hoc investments. And of course, private sector participation has been limited, not so much in Kazakhstan, but in, or and also relatively better in Uzbekistan, but other sections of the Central Asian network has been almost closed for private sector participation, and that's a problem. And finally, um, of course, the users would like to see the single corridor management approach in order to be able to deal with a single party, single authority that would enhance the predictability of their relationship management. So as part of our assessment, uh, as I mentioned initially, we assessed three Central Asian corridors against each other. And we managed to identify actually the central network is the most sustainable one. Because as you can see on the map, it already has a very existing, large, extensive transport network. It has catchment area that involves four of the most populous five cities in Central Asia, except for Astana. It involves pretty much most of the border crossing points that are um, conducive for further, further development. And also there are multiple economic production centers within the catchment area of this central network. So the gray area you see, the dark gray area you see here is the 300 kilometer catchment area from the main Kazakh network. And then the light gray one is the 600 catchment area on towards north and south of this South Kazakhstan area. So if we think about the middle corridor or like the central Trans-Caspian network as a infrastructure asset development program with a regional approach, then we can't only develop a single line, but if we manage to also improve the 
cross-border links and manage to connect other Central Asian connections, integrate all of them together, then we'll be able to see um, very good economic outcomes for the whole region, including these economic centers, actually. But of course, we know that in Central Asia only, additional investments of 18.5 billion euros is needed to, to, to materialize the um, 33 or 32 uh, priority investment needs that have been identified. We looked at more than 170 investment projects that are potentially possible in the region, and we prioritize them as per sustainability criteria again. And in order to materialize these priority investment plans or investment projects, 18.5 billion euros is needed. But at the same time, it's not only hard infrastructure, as I mentioned. We need to see improvements of the, on the soft connectivity side as well, both in the short term, but also in the medium term. And these are the usual suspects. Again, I do believe during the Q&A session, we can go into the details of this, but of course they in include digitalization, interoperability, enhanced PPP markets for enhanced private sector participation, trade facilitation, all sorts of these things. And there are very detailed assessments in the report, should anyone I mean, if anyone is interested, they can go check the report on both EU and EBRD web pages. Um, but good thing is actually, if these improvements are materialized somewhat or realized, then we'll see very significant returns for the region. So this one, this um, slide here, I, I mean, the left-hand side graph shows the business as usual scenario where we estimate the container traffic on the central Trans-Caspian network. So I know that in 2022, you must have seen that the middle corridor has carried 33,000 containers. You must have seen the news. But actually, the 33 means some of them, some of them have gone through the southern Kazakh route, and the others went through the northern Kazakh route. So this 18,000 here, based on our assessments and um, interviews with the users, is the one that traveled through southern Kazakhstan route, which is the backbone of this central Trans-Caspian network. And if everything goes fine under the business as usual scenario, we expect that this central Asia, central Trans-Caspian network would be able to carry 130,000 containers by 2040. This is the business as usual scenario. However, if all the improvements materialized, including the soft connectivity measures, then we would be able to see 865,000 containers on the central Trans-Caspian route. So this is a seven-fold increase compared to the business-as-usual scenario. So it shows the sheer size of the potential impact that we are talking. And of course, the benefits would be uh, mostly to the Central Asian countries because they will be benefiting from the um, revenues that... All these trains will be developing, the trucks will be develop, um, traveling within the region so that they will be receiving fees and tariffs um, through access charges. But then at the same time, not only the central Trans-Caspian route, but also, the, of course, the northern Trans-Caspian route and the southern Trans-Caspian route would also benefit from this increased uh, opportunities. So ultimately, for Middle Corridor, we are looking at 1.4 million containers by 2040 if all these improvements materialize which is almost equal to the Northern Corridor's um, traffic by in 2021, 2022. 
But of course, now we have to come back to the financing because we are talking about a huge amount of investment needs here. So who's going to finance? Currently, the scope of bankable investment projects in the region is quite narrow, as we all know. That's why the IFIs are heavily involved. That's why most of the projects are sovereign funded. Um, and given the limited bankability opportunities in the region, we expect most of the projects to be financed um, by the governments, if any. However, even now, there are promising sectors for private sector participation. And we know that the European investors are quite interested, not only European, but also Asian investors are quite interested in uh, investing in ports and fleet expansion and warehousing facilities, which are more about like the logistics sector. But still, they, will, they would need guidance and clarity and predictability from the government. So even if they come, they would still look at the government in terms of uh, enhanced soft connectivity measures. But of course, if the freight traffic, the economic activity in Central Asia itself, and the transport volumes along the Eurasian network increases, um, then we would expect to see more private sector participation in the region. But we have to be realistic. Currently, we are looking at more sovereign financing, and governments will need to take some action if they would like to bring private sector to the region for their investments. So I'm just going to, hopefully I didn't um, exceed my time too much, but um, that's pretty much it. And I think we can discuss more during the Q&A session. Thank you. Thank you very much. Can you hear me? Oh, we on? Okay. <laughs> Ida, thanks. That was a, a very interesting, very comprehensive presentation. So what, uh, what I take from it is that uh, there's definitely very significant potential to increase the value of this route. Uh, there will have to be a need uh, for coordination. There's a need for policy adjustments. There's a need for capital. Um, but uh, the capital could potentially have very high returns. Um, so it's a, it's a matter of, uh, in the end, the political will and the decisions and the coordination uh, that would uh, be able to unlock these returns. Okay, now <clears throat> with that, um, let's go over to the next presentation. I would like to give the floor to Roman Mogilevsky, who's a senior economist at the Asian Development Bank. Roman has extensive experience in researching trade policy, public finance, labor markets, social policy, and macroeconomics in Central Asia and Eastern Europe. Uh, and Roman's presentation will be on the development of the middle corridor. So please over to you, Roman. Thank you very much. Uh, let me present uh, preliminary results of our study, which we are doing uh, at the Asian Development Bank together with my uh, director and colleague, uh, Dr. Leaziza Saberova. So let me first uh, provide this a little bit of uh, qualification because we use uh, terminology somewhat different from what is uh, in, was in the EBRD study in the previous presentation. For us, middle corridor is any uh, corridor crossing Caspian Sea. We also use language Northern Corridor, but that's uh, the corridor which goes through Kazakhstan via Russia and then Belarus to, Euro uh, to, to European Union. Uh, so north of Caspian Sea. And there is theoretically also Southern Corridor which goes south of uh, Caspian Sea. That's our language. So please, there is no contradiction. It's just different ge geographical uh, understanding of terms. Uh, <clears throat> 
So we saw that recent shocks, which are, were many in, the, in recent years, the pandemic and the war, the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the crisis with uh, maritime routes of different kinds, they all created major risks for PRC Europe freight uh, traffic, which is one of the most important uh, streams of uh, internet, uh, global trade. But not only for that, well, uh, the economies of Caucasus and Central Asia, they also were strongly affected by these shocks in, in different ways. Some suffered, some benefited unexpectedly, but well, they were strongly affected. And from the uh, vulnerability of different routes, uh, position middle corridor uh, as the least vulnerable route for trans-Eurasian union, uh, trans-Eurasian and regional transport flow. So basically, nothing happened along this corridor in, in terms of political uh, political events. It still functions as as it should be. That attracts great interest to the middle corridor, and uh, due to complications on different uh, routes, competing routes. Uh, the demand for shipments via this corridor has dramatically increased in uh, 2022. We are now in 2024 and we know a little bit more uh, about what has happened. So we have now the, the develop, no developments in, uh, during the whole 2022 and 2023. So first, we know that ocean shipments resumed in 2022, and prices for shipments, which were like uh, very, very high, extraordinary high, fell dramatically to normal levels. Well, they are now up again, but uh, well, that we will see the fluctuations. Anyway, they are never nowhere close to what we had it during the pandemic time. The Northern Corridor, which the, goes through the war-affected territories, uh, there were major concerns whether it is going to function as it used to be. Now we know it continued functioning in 2022 and 2023. Well, the volumes uh, shipped through this uh, Northern Corridor, again, uh, to remind you, through Kazakhstan, from China, Kazakhstan, Russia, Belarus, Poland, the, the, these volumes fell, but not because of politics, but because of the ocean uh, route uh, took over a substantial part of the traffic, uh, which was very large uh, in 2021, 2022. Uh, same with Middle Corridor. The containing traffic via Middle Corridor has never been any, anything comparable to Northern Corridor. It was just a few percent of that. And it also fell in 2023. You can, well, that's a small font, I have to admit. Uh, but if you look at the second graph on the right and your yellow section is container traffic at Aktau port, which is a key port in the middle corridor. You can see how small it is in 2023 compared to 2024, no, 22, sorry. So yes, it also contracted significantly. There were major worries, which again increased interest to the middle corridor regarding functioning of the Caspian Pipeline Consortium, which is the main way for Kazakhstan to export its crude oil through pipeline to Russian port of Novorossiysk and then via tankers to everywhere. It still continues to function. Well, there were interruptions, worrisome, but well, so far it, it works. Uh, another possible factor which affects uh, performance of the middle corridor is the 
subsidies provided by PRC government to users of the railway route uh, to Europe. Those subsidies are very significant. But government of China declared uh, the medium-term uh, intention to cut or fully eliminate them. They are still in place. But if they will be cut, then economy, uh, economics of uh, middle corridor and also northern corridor may change dramatically just for that reason. Also, in the, when we talk about middle corridor, sometimes we think only movement uh, from uh, in uh, Western direction, from China, from Central Asia, from Caucasus to Europe. Well, actually, we have quite a flow of goods in opposite direction from Europe and or from Western partners who trade well, who uh, whose goods arrive in Georgian ports to to, to the in the eastern direction. And uh, we know that there was huge flow of re-exported goods to Russia, which are channeled through countries of Caucasus and Central Asia, and a significant portion of those re-exports go through the middle corridor. So middle corridor serves not only uh, exports of uh, countries of our region, but also imports. Uh, recently, there were several studies on middle corridor, which were published or prepared uh, by different international organizations, by EBRD, which we just heard a uh, very interesting study, very important study, World Bank, uh, Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, Asian Development Bank Institute uh, is preparing a compendium of more organizations and researchers who contributed to the discussion. I really don't want to repeat everything that's written. There's a lot of uh, useful insights. Uh, some take away, uh, and by the way, we are also finalizing our own study and we are going to publish it relatively soon. Actually, as soon as possible, let me say. Uh, so what are our takeaways of other people's studies? Well, it is the main point made explicitly in the World Bank's report, but it's also other reports also hint on that. Middle corridor is not going to be the main route serving traffic between PRC and European Union. It, uh, it will, might be useful for that purpose, but it's never going to be very uh, the main uh, channel because you have Northern Corridor, which still functions, you have Ocean Route, you may have some other competing uh, routes in, in the future. So middle corridor is predominantly for own use of countries in the, in the region of Caucasus and Central Asia. That's for them mostly to connect them to each other and to their Western trade partners, Europe, the main of, uh, of course, but there are also uh, through the sea, you can go to Africa, America, elsewhere. Middle corridor still retains strategic importance as a critical resilience mechanism. If something happens, China has alternatives. Countries of the region have very few alternatives. So for them, middle corridor is really something which is under their control, and that's that's uh, the whole well sufficient reason to care much about development of this corridor. As mentioned already, and World Bank documented that transportation costs and times for shipments via middle corridor are really high, much longer times, much uh, much more costly to ship goods and containers and non-containerized goods through the middle corridor so far. So it is really a challenge to bring this cost down to make this corridor competitive. To make this 
happen, you need the large infrastructure investments, you, but also you need major improvements in trade facilitation and logistics uh, along the middle corridor in, in on different segments, actually on all segments. And as was mentioned that everybody stresses that and we are happy to uh, repeat that, regional cooperation is key for middle corridor development because well, that's multi-country uh, facility. Uh, as we position middle corridor as serving uh, uh, the trade of uh, Caucasus and Central Asia first and foremost, let's have a quick look on that this trade. First of all, the mutual trade, the intra-regional trade is small. You can see that the left uh, hand side graph, graph, but it's just a few percentage points from the total of the total trade, but their non-energy trade is uh, not that small and also in, uh, has pretty uh, sustainable uh, upward trend. Also, this trade is good because it provides uh, countries of the region with better international value chain participation roles than trade with other partners. So they sell to the world, for the outside world, basically raw materials and import uh, finished products. To each other, the, in the trade to each other, you have much more rich picture. They sell processed products and they import uh, intermediary products, for example, from each other. So it's really, you have some still small uh, number, but at least some emerging value chains inside the region. You can see the second graph, which uh, provides some illustration for that. Then, uh, that's a bit strong point, but let, let me make it. Uh, energy trade, energy exports of countries of the region require pipelines the, to fully serve exports of, of oil from Kazakhstan or, or from gas, uh, of gas from Turkmenistan or from Azerbaijan. Same, you need pipelines, railways, or vessels on Caspian Sea may be useful for some needs, for some flows but they don't provide no full-scale alternative. If something happens with existing pipelines, well, then the, the Caspian Sea, Trans-Caspian Sea is no replacement. And also we know that Kazakhstan is now using even more pipelines going through Russia than before. Some, some other opportunities opened. So it uh, leads us to the conclusion that we need to focus on non-energy trade. Uh, but it is uh, uh, asymmetrical in terms of transport mode. So it arrives by rail, for example, goods arrive to the region by rail and depart by road or by sea. <laughs> and so you can see this uh, graph, which uh, again provides a little bit of evidence uh, of that kind. Uh, lastly, let me make a strong point that uh, it is a multimodal corridor, but it is not even two modes, sea and rail. We couldn't ignore road as well because it is very important, especially for imports, but also for exports. So it's really, in some, for some countries of the region, it is more than half of trade turnover uh, by weight, uh, which served by, uh, by road transport. Now coming to uh, Asian Development Bank and its uh, contribution to the middle corridor. Well, we have the organization, which is ADB host secretariat, CAREC, the Central Asian Regional Economic Cooperation Program, which uh, uh, includes all countries of the region plus few more countries, uh, including Pakistan, Afghanistan, Mongolia, and China, of course. 
So on the CARIC umbrella, we have uh, several strategies which basically address all those issues which were mentioned in the uh, previous presentation and the current presentation. We have CARIC integrated trade agenda on trade facilitation, trade policy matters. We have CARIC transport strategy covering issues with different types of uh, uh, transport. And we have specifically railway uh, strategy for CARIC. ADB tries to support uh, development of the corridor in different ways through hard infrastructure uh, projects. We have projects in roads, in listed countries, in railways, in ports. Oh, that's not only active projects, that's also planned projects uh, are included here. We support, try to support structural reforms uh, in uh, economies of the regions by policy-based lending, for example, in the railway sector. We have plenty of different uh, technical assistance programs aiming at improvements in soft infrastructure, customs, joint border crossing points, information exchange, SPS measures, etc. We have uh, specifically developed a monitoring mechanism for corridor performance, which is called Corridor Performance Monitoring uh, Measurement and Monitoring. Uh, those who are not familiar, I invite to familiarize yourselves. That's like really sir, may serve as a tool to measure, okay, we invest, so what? Do we uh, achieve any results? And finally, well, finally, last but not the least, we believe that institutional development is uh, and knowledge work are absolutely necessary to, to promote the middle corridor. And for that, we are now considering developing in collaborative in an inclusive manner, middle corridor development strategy. So to summarize, middle corridor is strategically important, is even more than ever to serve Caucasus and Central Asia, uh, their trade between uh, themselves and with Western partners. It may also have a role in serving long-haul transcontinental transit between Europe and, and PRC. It is a multimodal route combining railroad and sea and general in our bank, which is concerned about climate change, that's not a good thing. So because we know that uh, road, for example, and sea are they are measuring meters of uh, uh, carbon uh, carbon emitters. So we need climate smart solutions. When we improve the infrastructure, we need to think, prioritize that. Uh, <clears throat> We need to work hard on to reduce costs, uh, transport and transit costs, and we might uh, this um, as already was described uh, should be achieved through a mix of hard infrastructure, soft infrastructure uh, measures, and competition enhancing structural reforms. I may come come to that later in the discussion and institutional developments. And ADB is kind of really prioritizes middle corridor development at this stage. Thank you very much. Let me stop here. Thank you, Roman. Um, this was a very nice compliment to uh, Idil's presentation. I think you, you set sort of the middle corridor in a, in a very realist, realistic framework here. So I take from it that um, we shouldn't view it primarily as a, as a means of, of um, boosting the transcontinental uh, trade. Uh, for that, it has a resilience benefit, but, um, but we should look at the benefits from, for Central Asia itself and the, and the connectivity within the region and the benefits that it can draw uh, economically from from this. 
and uh, and that's an important uh, consideration here. So um, this uh, middle corridor is, is very unlikely to turn into the main route for long-term trade, but it uh, it has value in itself and it has value in particular in the region. And found it interesting how you you placed uh, Carrick as a driver of uh, of change as a platform and which can also help to coordinate the work of the multilateral development banks and others. So very useful um, background for our panel and we're now going to turn to the panel um, which would focus on on various aspects around the economics of the middle corridor and the current issues uh, surrounding it and I will start with a question for each of our panelists before we move to a more free-flowing discussion. Um, so first of all, I'd be I'd, I'm very happy to introduce uh, Richard Pomfret, our first panelist. Uh, Richard is senior adjunct professor at the Johns Hopkins School um, <clears throat> of Advanced International Studies in Bologna, in Italy, and he's also professor of economics emeritus at the University of Adelaide in Australia. And I believe uh, he's joining us from Australia today. Uh, Richard has many years of experience advising international organizations uh, and, and other bodies, and he's the author of several books, currently writing the book with the title Central Asia's Russian Era and After, Russia's Near Abroad or the Crossroads of Asia? Question mark. And uh, that is what we want to hear from you now, Richard. You've done all this research on the history, the development of the transport connections between Europe and Asia. Can you tell us a bit more about the historical development of these routes? Over to you, Richard. Uh, thank you, Hans Pedro, and thank you also, Alvira, for inviting me to this very interesting um, panel. Um, my worst fears have actually been met because I was very afraid Idil and um, Roman would say a lot of the things that I wanted to say, and much of the presentations I agree with, so I won't repeat that, and so... If I mention their presentations, I'll mention the things I disagree with because I think that's a little bit more, more interesting. Okay, in terms of the history, you know, the history, I think, is very straightforward in the very long term. We all start off talking about the Silk Road for two millennia, there were overland routes between China and Europe with um, camel caravans, and then about 1500, the Portuguese um, navigators discovered the sea route to Asia, and then sea dominates, and then it's a straight line from there to um, modern container ships with over 20,000 um, containers on them. You know, two lessons from that, though, I think, uh, sim that very simplified history is that, I mean, the Silk Road is a reminder that there have always been benefits for trade between Europe and Asia. There, is, there are reasons for trade, even when it was hazardous um, and long and dangerous. Um, you know, uh, merchants went along those routes. Secondly, you know, the... Um, emergence of ocean shipping and building of the Suez Canal and so on has really reduced the cost. When we look at the East Asian miracle of the last half century, you know, those exports from East Asia, they all go by sea to, to, to Europe. There's no competing with, with these boats of 25,000 containers. And when Edel mentioned you know, getting the, the, road, the rail transport up to sort of 800,000 containers, how, how many boats is that? 45 boats. You know? uh, you, there's no competing on price. So how did they, uh, these um, land, rail land bridges develop? Well, they developed in the 2000s, initially um, by the German car companies looking for ways to get components to their assembly plants in China. 
They were willing to pay more for faster delivery and reliable on-time delivery. We're talking about global value chains. These are the important characteristics. So they chartered um, trains. This is um, you know, flat um, truck wagons. They would carry containers full of components that were valuable enough to pay a, a premium to get them there on time. These are few and far between. The second stimulus um, was the decision by the Chinese government to try to encourage um, more activities in central China, or western China, as they called it, to move the locus of activity away from the, the east coast. Uh, they encouraged um, factories in um, Chongqing, in um, Sichuan province. And these factories were built by companies um, you know, uh, like uh, HP, making printers, um, Foxconn, uh, assembling Apple products, um, Intel. And they were going to ship the products for, for Europe up the Yangtze River. The Yangtze River becomes crowded, congested. So they look to sort of have a, a rail connection from central China to Europe. At the same time, the car companies want the rail connection going the other way. It starts around 2011. In 2011, there are 17 trains going between China and Europe and Europe and China. Um, it's successful by um, 2015. We're looking at, at 1,700 trains. Rapid growth uh, going on. Why does it happen? Uh, my argument is that it is overwhelmingly market-driven. The state-owned rail companies have to collaborate. The governments have to collaborate in having easy clearance through customs um, when they cross borders. There's a little bit of investment needs to be done, but the track is already there. You know, what happens is that as the um, rail services become more interesting to, to the customers, um, Freight forwarders and companies like DHL, which is owned by Deutsche Bahn, um, or FedEx, um, uh, start to offer other services, you know, partial container services. They provide the um, in, uh, mixed modal services to get from the terminal to where people want the goods picked up or delivered to. They have refrigerated containers. And it's this development that, that mushrooms. By 2016, we've got daily services between um, Chongqing and Duisburg. Um, and, and this is associated with a huge increase in traffic along the Northern Corridor. Two things I, I would point out about that is that, first of all, I think it was overwhelmingly uh, market-driven. I think that, that is quite important. Secondly, China was always a bit worried about being dependent on a single route. Roman referred to this, I think, uh, a bit obliquely. As soon as the UN... Uh, sanctions on Iran were eased in 2016. China sent trains to Tehran. Yeah? Um, they were trying to avoid this um, uh, dependence on a route through, through Russia. But it wasn't a good route to get to Europe because the rail connections between Iran and eastern Turkey are really in terrible shape. You've got to take a boat across Lake Van, the track's in bad shape. So attention shifts to the middle corridor, which is the theme of our, of our talk today. The middle corridor has its benefits. You know, it's much more direct to go to Turkey, the Middle East, or Southern Europe. Um, it has its problem. You have to go across the Caspian Sea. So you've got to put the containers on a boat that goes across the Caspian Sea. In many of the routes, for example, on Edil's map, you then go across the Black Sea, which means you put on another boat that goes across the, the Black Sea. These boats aren't great. You know, there are only three boats on the Caspian Sea. You know, it, it, this is a, a, ma a major, major issue, I think. So there has to be some investment in improving the sea crossings. 
final point I want to make, because I'm aware that you only gave me five minutes, uh, is that when we try to look at the, these options, I think we should be very careful about saying this is where the future is going to be. The future is really hard to predict. I'm much happier predicting the past. Uh, what, what is going, going to happen? Well, first of all, we don't know what's going to happen to the route through Russia. It's still being used a lot, as Roman said. The German car companies still use that to send the components to China. They, they don't pay Russian railways. The Chinese partners pay Russian railways, so they get around sanctions that way. That is a huge advantage. It's an overland route. So that's going to come back. Also in the longer term, you know, if uh, relations with Iran improve sufficiently to have routes through Iran or through Afghanistan, a southern route going south of the Caspian Sea could develop. When we look at what China is doing, their, their um, major new investment program is to connect Kashi, Kashgar in western China through Roman's home country of Kyrgyz Republic to Uzbekistan. That will link to many Chinese cities and production centers more directly to the middle corridor, to a southern corridor, which is in many ways a, a desirable thing. When we look at Uzbekistan, which has really um, liberalized over the last seven years, they're already sending their exports, um, fertilizers, clothing, other exports, along these routes through Turkmenistan. All the maps we've seen so far have got things going through the ports of Kazakhstan. Turkmenistan is a pain in the neck at the moment, but if they start to liberalize, that is a shorter route across the Caspian. So a big, big warning about saying this has to be the exact route in future. And the lesson from the land bridge so far is the private sector will help to tell you which are the routes that users want to, um, to uh, patronize. You know, what are the ways of doing this, of getting things between China and Europe and between Europe and China? Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Richard. That was great. Um, the one one thing uh, to take from this is that the middle corridor is not the only alternative to the to the major transcontinental uh, routes, uh, and um, and so there's there's this competition to take into account. And one thing that raises in my mind is whether the uncertainty of you know where the future. Uh, potential is really going to be realized. That uncertainty could itself be deterrent to capital investment that we are looking for. So even though this is a market-driven development, the market isn't necessarily going to be very clear on the specific um, route, the, the 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 specific tracks that would be um, winning out in the future. A bit like uh, like you have with technology uncertainty. So um, with that, I want to turn to our next panelist. And our next panelist is Ratha Menishova, who is the head of the project department at the Chartered Institute of Logistics and Transport in Central Asia, where she focuses on international projects aimed at enhancing trade connectivity in Central Asia. So smack on uh, our topic here today. Um, my question to Ratka is what are the challenges that you see to the development of the middle corridor? And specifically, are there any challenges experienced by freight companies on this route? Thank you very much. Thank you, everyone. It's an honor to be here among such a leading experts. And um, yes, um, as Mr. Ponkat said, my expectations, <laughs> basically, <clears throat> Mr. Raman and Ms. Itil has already have given an overview, but more globally, more like the perspectives where um, on a 
sort of global way analysis. As per me, yes, I'd like to mention, I guess, to come um, more about what actually forward this experience as an institute and working with uh, international donor projects. We have done an anonymous questionnaire among the Central Asian freight forwarders who actually used, uh, or used to use or still planning to use the middle corridor and ask their concerns. So one of the biggest challenges uh, from their perspective was the um, hidden costs. However, you know, um, and that there is also infrastructure as has been mentioned a lot. And if to go more into details, we've been discussing that there is an infrastructure constraint, but specifically for Central Asian uh, freight forwarders, it was the vessel unreli unreliability because the Caspian uh, ships only move when there is enough enough cargoes from Aktau, it obviously leads to the um, cargoes being held up, and also railway capacities. We all already know that there is a limit limitation to that, and uh, transloading, and because this uh, Caspian mode is a multi-model. That's basically one biggest challenge for freight forwarders because obviously it's in their interest to move faster their <laughs> cargoes, but because there is a transloading and there is a difficulties, as was stated by the World Bank, uh, administrative basically difficulties as well. And uh, despite, for example, in a I don't know, best scenario that investments are uh, attracted and the infrastructure challenges are being met, there is still um, an issue with cross-boarding on a legislation level. It has to be harmonized so for it to basically flow faster. And I guess another point I'd like to make from our point of view is um, environmental challenge. Uh, basically, the Caspian Basin has to be taken into account. Now we're, everyone is discussing about infrastructure and the future prognosis, but I guess what has to be taken into account is the actually deterioration of the Caspian Basin. And it has to be taken into account when discussing the future basically prospects of the uh, middle corridor. I guess that's, that's my add-on to the <laughs> previous Great discussions and the presentations. Thank you. Thank you so much, Raka. Uh, I think it's uh, it's very good that you're putting the environmental challenge on the table, um, and in particular in this very very vulnerable uh, part of the world, and uh, that needs to be factored in also into the economics of this corridor. So it'd be interesting to hear um, perhaps later in our discussion how others react to that. Our next panelist is uh, Dolores Chulebekova, who is director of the World Economy Research Center at the Economic Research Institute of Kazakhstan. And uh, Dolores, uh, my question to you is, uh, what opportunities do you see the Middle Corridor presenting for countries in the region in terms of trade integration? So how can the Middle Corridor be a uh, a sort of trigger for deeper integration in the region. Over to um, you, please. Hello, everyone, and I'm honored to be here, and I'm welcoming all participation. And 
In the context of the deep importance of globalization and the aspiration of states to integrated interaction within the framework of economic association is of particular importance. And regional integration of states uh, with similar levels of economic development, potential and historical background can be expected to facilitate more effective integration into the world market economy. And one of the main factors of regional development is the transport of, and transport and logistic complex. And the, in this way, the middle corridor holds the promise of unlocking new avenues for trade integration, economic development, and cultural exchange. With infrastructure investment, uh, Central Asian countries gain access support along the middle corridor, providing them with maritime connection to international markets. And this access opens up new avenues for export and imports, stimulating economic growth and diversification. Additionally, the improved infrastructure reduces transit times and costs, making the land load developing countries more competitive in the global market. Uh, furthermore, diversifying trade roads uh, is a strategic imperative in the modern global economy for several compelling reasons. And first and foremost, it mitigates the risk associated with geopolitical tensions and potential disruptions along specific roads. And secondly, diversification contributes uh, to economic stability by reducing reliance on a single market or trading partners. Relying on a narrow range of trade roads limits a nation's flexibility in responding to economic shifts or changes in the demand for specific goods. By diversifying trade roads, countries are able to access a broader array of markets, fostering economic growth and stability. And uh, for example, trade between China and the European Union in 2022 increased by 22.8% uh, compared to 2021, amounting uh, 856.3 billion US dollars. And uh, for example, another side that the trade turnover between Central Asia and the European Union countries also continues to grow, reaching, uh, reaching uh, $48 billion in 2022. And economic cooperation along the Middle Corridor not only contributes uh, to, uh, contributes, uh, to regional uh, trade integration and stability, but also provides a platform for diplomatic dialogue and conflict resolution. Moreover, joint economic ventures and projects can serve as confidence-building measures, fostering goodwill and cooperation among middle corridors countries. A collaborative efforts in infrastructure develop development, a trade agreements, and investments initiatives create a, a common ground for diplomatic, uh, dip diplomatic engagement. In the face of disagreements or disputes, economic cooperation provides a framework for nations to come together, negotiate, and find mutually beneficial solutions uh, that preserve the stability and prosperity of the region. And uh, the transformative nature of the Middle Corridor extends, ex extends uh, beyond the physical movement of goods. It represents a renaissance for Central Asia or on the world stage. Uh, through the corridors, a comprehensive approach, integration infrastructure, regulatory frameworks, and economic cooperation, 
Central Asian countries have the potential to share their destinies and become key players in the evolving landscape on, of international trade. And also, the Middle Corridor stands as a testament to the power of connectivity, collaboration, and vision, offering Central Asia a pathway towards a future market by shared prosperity, sustainable growth, and renewed position of influence in the global economy. And thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Dolores. Um, I think that's a very uh, interesting way of looking at uh, the middle corridor as essentially by establishing external, improved external competitiveness, uh, it also makes it possible for um, uh, the internal comparative advantages in the in Central Asia to play out. Uh, and for that, of course, there's a need for trade uh, harmonization for, for regulatory uh, action uh, within Central Asia. And the question is, can the middle corridor, can that, um, uh, that incentive uh, be enough <laughs> to drive uh, the internal harmonization? Uh, also useful to look beyond trade and goods uh, and at other aspects of regional integration. Great. Now, um, turning to our next uh, panelist, and would like to introduce Dina Ashgalieva, who is a senior research fellow at ADBI. Dina is a co-organizer of today's event and has many years of experience of working as an economist. Her current research focuses on energy policy. So my question to Dina is, um, you have researched the impact of the corridor on the participating countries. Can you tell us about the spillover effects of the middle corridor on participating economies? So complementing what we've heard from Dolores just now. Uh, please go ahead, uh, Dina. Thank you very much, Hans-Peter, especially you pronounced my last name so well that was not expected i usually don't expect that um thank you so much so it was great to speak after all these fantastic speakers with two reports from ERD and adb presented um so we at adbi we produced a book on transcaspian corridor which is another name of the middle corridor uh in 2021 first and i think it was the first book on this topic um, and uh, it was before the COVID, before the war, so attention to this topic was not so high. Uh, but then, um, after the war started, uh, the attention to the topic became so high, and uh, I got many questions about this corridor, and also, we, as, as Roman said, several reports by big organizations were published, EBRD, ADB, OECD, World Bank, um, uh, so, so, and, and more to come as well. So there is a great attention. Actually, I'm very happy. I myself from Central Asia. I'm very happy to such attention. The region faced for like usually facing this problem with attracting investments in uh, in uh, transport. Why? Because the region is very very low population density. Like probably you know, uh, we have vast territories, huge territories. So it means you need to invest a lot of in a lot in infrastructure because huge territories, vast distances while population density is very small. So it's very hard to get enough of local demand, right? So for example, you can see my background picture. I'm right now in Tokyo. There is no problem with local demand, right? Because it's probably one of the most densely populated places on Earth. So it's very 
it's a lot easier to invest in infrastructure because there is enough demand for infrastructure. So infrastructure is very well organized, convenient, and lots of uh, transportation is available. While in Central Asia, we have very limited local demand. So how to attract investments when demand is so limited, such a low population density also? Uh, so one of the ways to, to do that is to use this uh, like middle corridor, uh, the, the transport corridors, which allows not only domestic demand, but also international demand. So if international countries, uh, the countries nearby from the region can use this um, role, these facilities, then demand is greater, so that's easier to attract uh, investment. And I agree with you. So from this book, we actually published a few years ago, we came to the same results, which are very similar to Roman and Adil saying, um, so we are not contradicted. The results are very similar that uh, improvements in this corridor, if we can reduce time or cost, it not only increases uh, trade, uh, but it also will lead to spillover effects such as employment will increase, taxes will increase, uh, GDP, and like it is at social access, for example, health and so on. Because local people can also use the, the, the roads, like for example, railways, uh, roads uh, for, for accessing, for example, education, healthcare, and they can also get better access to goods and services because they will be traded. Uh, and that will lead to the development of the region. I totally agree with you. Like she said, we showed it in a book as well with simulation that the, the positive impact of investment in infrastructure is not only in the country where investment happens, but also for other neighboring countries. So that's totally the same results that other countries will also benefit. But we showed some differences. There are benefits, some countries more, some countries less, but definitely the whole region will benefit, and benefits are not only domestic, uh, but they also come to, to other regions. Um, and um, we, we also simulated this, um, how different improvements in corridor can lead to mostly lower effects. Um, so I will just, uh, uh, if, if you allow me, I just share you one page from the book. Uh, this shows uh, for simulation 5, S5, it shows uh, what if we remove, uh, reduce uh, customs border barrier uh, by half? So if custom border barriers reduced by half, we can see trade like doubles, and particularly the strong impact on Armenia, Azerbaijan, and Georgia, for example. Um, so so this, this is just an example of simulation how countries can benefit. So some countries benefit more, some countries benefit less, but I totally agree that all countries from the region will benefit. For example, when after the war started, you probably remember in Central Asia, it was hard to buy some some products. For example, some medicine was very hard to buy. And you and 2022 for Central Central Asia become famous for high inflation rate. So among ATB member countries, Central West Asia, West Asia, I we call in ATB terms, it's Azerbaijan, Armenia, Caucasus region. So this region had the highest inflation rate comparing to other ADB member countries, uh, let's say Southeast Asia, South Asia, Pacific. So it, it was the only region with two-digit inflation rate, the only region. No other region had two-digit inflation rate. And Kazakhstan reached 20% inflation rate. So uh, some uh, par partially the reason was uh, that transportation became more expensive. It became slower, less predictable. 
that's what uh, Raman and Nadil mentioned. Um, so we, all these things cost, uh, uh, cost uh, greater prices and then led to inflation. Uh, so I would like to uh, conclude my answer by what I like Richard Pompres. He said that the region is not one block, but one connected. So let's uh, join our forces. Like he said, we need to join forces to make this region from land block to land connected. Thank you. Thank you, Dina. That's a, that's a nice way of uh, putting the intentions here in a, in a nutshell. Uh, I also found it's uh, interesting how you uh, kind of make clear that there is a very high payoff. There's 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 you know economic leverage that you that improvements in policy and regulation uh, have, uh, and it's uh, very stark to see uh, what the impact on trade and transit. Is from from these shifts in policies, so investing in policies can have a, a very high return, and um, and it's a return that would then also change the parameters for investors. Now um, we're coming to our last panelist, um, and that's uh, my colleague here in the room, Elvira Mami who's a senior economic risk analyst in ODI's Global Risk and Resilience Program, and she's a co-organizer of today's event. Evira is an economist with expertise in international development, and her research interests lie in sovereign wealth funds, in economic connectivity, China and Central Asia. And so, again, uh, I think, Elvira, you're at the right place on this panel. And my question to you is, um, the Middle Corridor presents trade opportunities, clearly, for developing countries in the region. We've heard that. What are the implications for industrial growth in these countries? Over to you, Elvira. Uh, thank you so much uh, for the discussion today. It has been really interesting. And I'll try to add what has not been said already about the benefits and risks of the middle corridor. Uh, well, just two weeks ago, we've seen that the block train has journeyed from Xi'an in China to Baku in Azerbaijan in just 11 days which underscores the efficiency and the potential of the corridor in facilitating trade in the region. So what does it mean for the region? Well, if you look at the region, um, uh, the GDP of the Middle Corridor countries, um, Azerbaijan, Turkey, Georgia, and Kazakhstan together stands combined at, um, at all $1.7 trillion today. If you look at the Central Asia alone, the GDP uh, combined stands um, at more than $450 billion, which has grown more than sevenfold in the last 20 years. Uh, growing population of the region and the purchasing power of the region uh, present opportunities for uh, trading partners of the region. It is a big market. Um, uh, secondly, the traffic along the middle corridor can be roughly, as previous presenters have uh, discussed, can be divided in, into two categories, which is um, the transit trade between uh, China and Europe, which have been quite elastic to, the, to shift from the Northern Corridor, and as others have mentioned, to the Middle Corridor after geopolitical shocks of the last um, few years. Um, and also there is the trade and the traffic um, between the participating countries, which comprises mostly um, of raw materials, um, grains and fertilizers. Export structures of participating countries, as we know, um, uh, are concentrated in commodity exports. We have oil rich Azerbaijan and Kazakhstan. Well, of course, improved connectivity will expand the opportunities in trade in more goods and services uh, between the countries. But I'd like to mention one thing. Um, however, it will also reduce the cost of importing goods to the region, which may have um, 
various effects and may have negative impact on the domestic producers uh, if their goods are less competitive than the imports. So it is um, strategically important, I think, uh, for the industrial policy of the um, countries to support domestic producers to increase uh, their competitiveness and to upgrade their goods um, so that it's not just raw commodity exports, but to upgrade along the value chains. Supply development programs uh, can support the domestic SMEs. Third, and of course, others have mentioned, the low cost of trade and high connectivity will encourage the foreign direct investment into the region. The benefits would be maximized through encouraging linkages to the local SMEs and supporting local labor as well as technology transfers. And fourth is the question of financing. And I think um, Idil had discussed this already. Um, how will the infrastructure be financed? Do we expect government external debt to rise? Um, uh, which will mean that the participating countries will bear the responsibility of repayments over the next many years. Um, uh, will it be the burden of the taxpayer or is it the public-private partnerships um, and um, do we expect private investors to participate? And um, as um, Adil had mentioned, we have already seen some examples of multilateral banks uh, lending to private companies in the region. For example, um, the ZBID has lent to a rolling stock operator in Kazakhstan recently, which will help to expand the capacity of the region. And fifth, um, we can see already the positive impact on countries like Turkey, who has become a crucial um, logistics hub in the region benefiting from a trend in nearshoring, uh, which is offshoring to the nearby countries. And uh, we uh, believe there'll be positive spillovers from this on, on the region itself. And uh, will the nearshoring trend continue in the region? We don't know that, but it is a possibility. Uh, so to conclude, uh, it is important for participating countries to seize these opportunities, to um, use the export potential productively, uh, to support uh, the domestic economy, domestic producers to upgrade and to be competitive enough to um, and, and link to the global value chains. Thank you very much, Vera. I, I think we, we one can hear me, right? Yeah. So that was great. And I take it, um, Vera, you're, you're basically optimistic about the middle corridor and there's some evidence to back that up. Uh, there's some challenges but um, the solutions are relatively clear. Uh, and so in, pr in principle, this is a package, what you're saying is that, you know, if, if, if the decision makers um, get together and they realize this and just move forward with it, um, we, can, we can realize the potential of this region. So this is, um, I think, uh, something that we ought to look at a little bit more. And I'm gonna ask the panel um, before we turn it over to, uh, the the uh, other participants here. By the way, let me remind you that you can submit submit questions for the panel or for individual panelists through the Q and A function. So, but let me first use my prerogative as chair to dig a little bit uh, deeper into the various views that we've heard. Um, and I would like to turn uh, perhaps uh, first uh, to Roman. Um, Roman, uh, so you, you hear this. Um, somewhat optimistic view, which I believe you share from your perspective. Uh, the question is, uh, how do you make this a reality? And it hasn't happened. And I remember from my own work going back, you know, many years in this region, that uh, the idea of you know, the potential of uh, a middle corridor of sorts or whatever it was, was called in the earlier days, uh, was always there. It was always this question, you know, you know we need to invest into 
this corridor, but it didn't really happen. The harmonization um, uh, within the region didn't really happen. So what is it that is going to, what would you focus on? What's sort of the, 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 the thing that you would push in particular? What's the message from this panel to get this potential realized? Thank you very much. Well, good question. Uh, I think one important thing which everybody stress and we also would like to stress that we need cooperation between countries. So it's not one country solution which, which can resolve the issues of the middle corridor. But that means, uh, I, I believe we are now a little bit more optimistic than we were in the past uh, on that front, because, well, I think many governments in the region, they appreciate the risks they are facing now with uh, changing geopolitical situation, and they really perceive it's not a luxury kind of thing, but rather more and more as a necessity and uh, really uh, protect resilience mechanism uh, for them. So I think that's a major source of optimism uh, th these days. Secondly, as uh, was mentioned, I think we also mentioned that Dina, that uh, countries have more resources now and they are much better prepared today to face and to, to deal with this kind of serious challenges. They are kind of... Uh, more, more, more sober view with with larger resources, uh, with much higher role of the private sector in in all these economies. That's again another source of uh, kind of moderate but optimism uh, in development of this uh, of this corridor. Well, maybe I'll stop for now. Thanks. The optimistic case. Can you can you hear me now? Oh, I'm sorry, you couldn't hear me first. So I was just saying thanks. <laughs> it was very helpful uh, to to um, you know bolster the optimistic case. Uh, can I ask uh, uh, Richard? I know that you you prefer to predict the past and the future, but if we just pin you down right now and you look at these various elements that we've heard about on this panel. You know the the, um, the economics, the politics, the the questions of uh, regional harmonization, the uncertainty that you yourself brought into play, with the alternatives. What what is it that's going to happen? Um, so ten years from now, do you see this corridor uh, happening? And why will it have why will it have happened in your view? Okay, thanks. Um, just to go back to talk about the past, I would say one thing: you said the middle corridor hasn't happened. Yeah, clearly it didn't happen with Traseca back in the 90s. Um, but I disagree um, with Dina that her book in 2021 um, didn't have much interest. I thought it had a lot of interest because the middle corridor was already operating then, maybe only 5% of the total trade, right? But what I think it showed was that alternatives are good. You know, if you were trading between China and Turkey or Southern Europe, it was good to have that option and not have to go north and through Russia and, and Belarus. So I think alternatives are good. I think what we will see looking forward is that there will be alternatives. The middle corridor will, will flourish. How much it flourishes depends on the competition. You know, how, um, you asked me to predict the end of the Russia-Ukraine war. I'm not sure where, where, where that's heading. Um, you know, how much is going on the northern corridor? I think we also need to think about you know, how much um, the, the other obvious route geographically is to go south of the Caspian through Iran 
you know, how much that can become a feasible doesn't look so good from the perspective of 2024. But if you're talking, what, 10 years in the future, yeah, that to me is a, a, an obvious link between China and the Middle East and Southern Europe. So I think what we'll see are uh, the spread of alternatives and the middle corridor will certainly be one of those. Um, I, but I think there needs to be some flexibility. I mean, one of the problems you have with the modal change, though, is the sea transport across the Caspian um, and particularly across the Black Sea is obviously slower than, than rail. And it's also more uncertain. You have storms in the Caspian. You know, trains, you can predict the arrival date, which is important for global value chains. You're getting components coming in. You want them to arrive on Tuesday at four o'clock. Um, uh, and that's been a big advantage of, of the land bridge. So, yeah, I think electric rail is clearly environmentally and for lots of reasons, that's the way of the future. Which exact routes will be, I'm not sure. The middle corridor though, will be one of them and I'm expecting it to flourish. It depends a lot um, on all of the states along the, along the route, as we see in the Northern Corridor. If Russia becomes a bit uncertain, yeah, that disrupts things. What happens in Turkmenistan, to me, is a big question. Yeah. Is it going to become more part of Central Asia, more cooperative, um, in which case Turkmenbashi is probably a more useful port than Aktau that we're all talking about now, or will, Turkmen or will Turkmenistan remain the kind of uh, semi-leper state that it was under under Niazov and the, the first um, uh, Betty, yeah. Betty yeah. <laughs> okay. Thanks. No, good point. So, yeah, part of the regional integration challenge that we have is to integrate Turkmenistan. And if we do, then maybe the economics of the corridor are, are going to change, as you say. So, very interesting. Let me make a little um, advertisement here for Dina who has put um, uh, a bunch of really interesting studies on the chat. So if you look into the chat, you will see um, a message there from Dina. And um, my, so let me take my, my last panel here, is, uh, and my last question as chair to the panel uh, would be to Idil. And um, Idil, could you just comment on the costs of capital? Uh, in the end, that is going to play a big role. The cost of capital is is high. Um, we've heard this from you. We've heard this from others on this. But how how are going to how are the EBRD how are the other multilateral banks um, going to be able to lower that cost of capital to deal with the uncertainty which is priced into this capital, uh, and um, uh, and that would probably be quite a powerful push uh, to the middle corridor if you if you could achieve that. Can you just comment on that? Thank you, Hans. Um, so basically, that's a very, very good question, which everybody is trying to figure out, I believe. Um, the IFIs would be willing to provide capital um, as long as the projects are found to be feasible. And I believe most of the audience would understand what this means. Um, so one thing is project feasibility here, but the second point is also demand. Uh, the IFIs, financing institutions, do not provide loans or guarantees or credits on their own. That demand has to come from the governments. And of course, uh, we know that the needs are huge, needs are endless, because if you just assess the development agendas, development plans of all the countries, you can see there are like long lists of projects that are named there. But of course, um, it's not possible to finance everything. So maybe the first thing 
to focus here is project prioritization. What is needed and what will bring a higher economic rate of return compared to its alternatives. So it's very important. And that cannot be all the time done by the IFIs on behalf of the countries. So the countries need to develop their own skills to identify and prioritize projects. So having said that, um, we've been, of course, like, like, like everybody else, we've been in discussions with the governments and of course with the other IFIs. And I do believe by the end of this month, um, the, the public will have a better understanding of where the IFIs are standing in terms of financing these kind of investments, because there is the Global Gateway Investors Forum in Brussels next week. And I believe a, a lot of people are aware of it already. So um, potentially there may be some announcements on the expected amount of um, IFI financing um, for these kind of investments, especially in Central Asia. So that may definitely help closing the gap that has been already identified. Um, in terms of like different financing models, of course it's subject to the project nature. So it's impossible to give an answer, a blanket answer that would apply to all the projects in the region because some of these projects have higher costs due to obvious reasons. Um, and it's it's almost impossible to lower the costs for certain projects. So um, those things need to be assessed on a case-by-case -case basis. So um, unfortunately, I'm not able to say anything in terms of pricing or like financing models because these are project specific, maybe Roman may have an idea from the ADB side here, but um, what I know is like next week's Global Gateway Investors Forum is a space to watch in terms of understanding how much um, the whole financing world or like development world, development financing world would be able to chip in um, should certain uh, measures are in place. So, but of okay. course we know that the needs are endless uh, the needs are huge and it would benefit if we could see more private sector participation and that requires a lot of market reforms, unfortunately. That could be supported by the IFIs because we all are strong in uh, market making mechanisms and providing support to governments. And that would ultimately, not in the shortest run, but in the medium term to long term, um, that would help closing the gap far faster. Thank you, Ido. So that's actually very interesting. So the MDBs are essentially giving themselves a framework for um, uh, for planning around the middle corridor. I take this uh, from you. We're going to see this in the context of the global of the global gateway. Uh, I wouldn't say it's a framework framework agreement between all the IFIs, but I think it's more of like um, goodwill representation around the forum to understand okay. like who can do what and to identify different strengths of different IFIs to support the developments in the upcoming years. Right. We also have uh, CAREC, uh, we have the Global Gateway, uh, we have the, the Belt and Road Initiative, um, and then we have the countries themselves. And we have an interesting question from Antoinette uh, Sala on the chat, uh, on the Q&A here, uh, asking what are the financial commitments of the participating countries to the Middle Corridor? And um, some countries have deep pockets, Kazakhstan has deep pockets, Azerbaijan has deep pockets. Um, can can uh, what 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 is the status? And can these countries can can co-financing arrangements between the countries themselves, the MDBs, you know, the the EU Global Gateway, the, uh, the Chinese BRI, uh, can can th can those come together to um, enable uh, funding the capital cost 
Um, I don't know who I should ask first, but perhaps Dina, you could take a shot at this one. Um, I'm sorry, I think this question is very hard to answer. Uh, I haven't checked, but what I can say that uh, government funding expenditure is really limited, and um, so I, it's important to think how to attract private investments and other funds, so not not only rely on government expenditure. Because um, that's what I said that when attracting investments in infrastructure in Central Asia is very hard. Um, and you, because of this reliance on government expenditure, it's important to attract more uh, other funds like private financing uh, in order to meet them. Because demand for infrastructure is huge. Uh, I remember several years ago, ADB did study uh, how much in, what are investments needs in, in different regions. And uh, um, the, the needs are huge, and infrastructure investments cannot be met only by public expenditure. Uh, but maybe someone else can answer better than me. Yeah, maybe uh, Dolores, do you want to have a shot at this? The question of financial commitments of the participating countries? Um, financing, yeah. Uh, actually, I want to add that um, in previous year we prepared some um, analysis for Eurasian Development Bank. And according to uh, our results, it was a uh, logistic and uh, transport logistical infrastructure sector. It was uh, the most uh, effectiveness and potential for good investments in our region, in region of Central Asia. And that's why I think that Middle Corridor have, have, um, has uh, this potential that uh, it uh, should be uh, developed by uh, investment from foreign countries and also uh, by potential um, participation who you whose goods are will be transported by this way. And why I agree with Dina that it should be investment and maybe private sector. Not, not only state. Thank you. Not only state, no, absolutely. So uh, let me take another question here and uh, Timur Useyev is asking uh, about the bottlenecks, um, so capacity bottlenecks um, in the ports, the administrative uh, bottlenecks. Uh, what are sort of the, the, the key uh, bottlenecks that need to be tackled? And if one were to, to build a bit of a timeline of action here, what is it, uh, what's the advice that we would be giving uh, the countries of the region, where to focus on, uh, where's the highest payoff? Uh, is that something uh, perhaps that Raha, you could uh, take on? Yes, thank you. Thank you, yes. Um, yes, we, we could look into, I guess, uh, on the perspective, if we're talking about the economic uh, development of the region, export, or like if we're looking into development of economic development, the region, not just the transporting uh, from China to Europe. And then there is an issue with, for example, grain. And there is a limited capacity of grain transportation and at the ports of Georgia. And this has to be looked into, I guess, one of the, yeah, yes, one of the points where we need to look at. But overall, there is, um, I have prepared, I guess, uh, six bottlenecks from the 
infrastructure. So I two I think already mentioned. I will start again. It's a vessel unreliability, which I have mentioned that. Uh, just waiting for enough cargoes for vessels to operate at the Caspian Sea. Another is a railway capacity on the Caucasus section of the road. So at this point, to the best of my knowledge, uh, it's only to the 15 million tons. The <clears throat> basically what railway capacity of Caucasus, which is the uh, Azerbaijan and Georgia railways. And that there is also imbalanced traffic flow. So empty backhauls, high transport costs for container shipments. There's a larger volumes from the west-east direction, but lesser in the reverse direction. Estimated to be 20% lesser, I guess. Uh, and the transloading results in a lower efficiency for the middle corridor, or TITR as we call it. Shipping lines who own the sea containers are reluctant to send the containerized cargoes to Central Asia due to the long time return. As such, most containers are unstaffed at Poti or Batumi, and then the goods are transloaded into trains or trucks. So basically this increases obviously time and costs of the using TITR. And another is limited container yard capacity, which results in the need of moving containers to off docks container yards outside the seaports. And the, because this physical um, capacity, basically space at the ports like Poti does not have enough space for stacking the containers. And another one is the shortage of quality warehouse facilities where to save basically as per, um, Georgian side, there is only a class, only one A-class warehouse uh, near the airport and then none near the ports, the seaports. So which also sort of uh, makes difficulties for transporting um, uh, products of the cold chain facilities, basically, that has to be frozen and so on. So this, I could basically add on to the question. These are again. Is, uh, one of the primary things to look at. Thank you very much, uh, Racha. <clears throat> I think it's really interesting how much we actually know about um, what could make the middle corridor economically viable, what the actions are that need to be taken. Uh, <clears throat> so you see there's sort of an action plan uh, that can be effectively costed and where we can we can describe the returns like in, in Dina, Ashgalieva's uh, presentation earlier, <clears throat> where you can you can associate returns to political action, and uh, an action plan for the region, uh, I think, would uh, uh, kind of emerges from from this discussion. Uh, be kind of uh, interesting to see how we how this can get advanced. Now, there's this interesting question by Isa Tusar in in our Q and A about the role of governance in the region. Uh, in in enabling and sort of effective governance in, in enabling the viability of the middle corridor and I think it's closely linked to this question if we if we know what needs to happen we can price it um, uh, what's the role of governance in making it possible uh, can I just throw this to the um, the panel as a whole who would like to come in on that Roman please Thank you. Uh, governance has many facets. Uh, let me mention one which is closer to my uh, area of expertise, the macroeconomics. And 
Well, and this also links to our previous discussion about financing modalities. So these days, more and more, and especially in Kazakhstan and Azerbaijan and some other in Georgia, uh, international organizations turn to financing in local currency. And this is, has many advantages for, for the borrowers, both government and private sector, because that excludes uh, foreign exchange uh, rate risks. However, it depends critically on the monetary policy situation and on the inflation rate. So if the usually key, key policy rates in, in the governments are not, should be higher, a uh, little, little bit higher than the inflation rate. So if you have high key policy rates, then of course all other rates in the economy, including our rates, which we lend on uh, use for lending to the governments and private sector are high as well. So the way to reduce financing costs is to disinflate. And then uh, if it's it's been, we went through a period of very high interest rates, uh, inflation rates now it's lower and governments started, to, central banks started to lower the key policy rates as well. So this single measure, this is this governance, of course, uh, will drive cost of borrowing down and uh, you contribute dramatically to the uh, investments and uh, required investments for the middle corridor development sense. Okay, <clears throat> thank you. And Idil, do you want to comment on that as well? Um, I think that's a very right question. And um, it has been discussed a lot among the international community and the users for a long time because a governance structure would enable the users to face a single authority in front of them instead of uh, multiple agents, multiple stakeholders. So, so that's very important. And um, as we know, a very welcome step recently has been the establishment of this joint logistics company by the Kazakhs, Azeris, and Georgians. Um, that's a very right step in the right direction. But of course, that needs to be topped a little bit with enhanced governance structures in order to also align norms and standards and harmonize the regulations etc because once you cross the border then the regulations change and then another border crossing another um, set of norms and rules so that makes the life still difficult for the users so um, improving the current um, goodwill that has been demonstrated by the establishment of this joint um, logistics company by improved governance structures that would be supported by all the corridor countries would definitely um, support the operations and potentially encourage more users to prefer middle corridor. However, um, as far as I'm aware, uh, who's been working in the area for a while, um, I don't know if such a governance structure uh, has been in place or like the discussions somewhat started between the countries but we haven't seen any solid action yet, um, but everybody is uh, waiting for it to materialize as well. It is almost as important as like um, investments themselves, because actually if you have a solid operating structure, you can still make use of the existing network in a more efficient manner. So that would still make a difference, even if you don't invest huge amounts of money on the network as we speak. Thank you, uh, Idil. I think it makes a lot of sense. Um, it's, it seems sort of the obvious thing to do. The question is, why isn't it coming together? Why don't we see it? Richard, do you have any views on that? 
Um, I think it is coming together, but it happens slowly. I think it's the main view. Um, I've, I think we should also emphasize some of the positive things about governance. And one of the problems in Central Asia has been corruption. And you know, that was a real problem when a lot of things were traveling by truck and the police would stop people and take bribes. You know, these, um, going by uh, rail um, with uh, containers, you know, as long as you agree on the seals that go through the customs, you know, I think that really is a way to, to reduce the, the problem of corruption. Um, I, I think um, that it, it's also clearly environmental improvement to have electric trains rather than the old trucks we used to see in Central Asia. So I think there are some uh, positive things on a very large, large level. I'd also emphasize when somebody earlier talked about um, you know, what we really want is to increase um, living standards, and that depends on domestic policies. That's, that's really, really clear. But I think we should be aware of worrying about um, the imports becoming easier to get into the country. That's one of the benefits. You know, when you talk to um, entrepreneurs who are trying to develop export industries, they want world-class inputs. They want the inputs. So imported mm -hmm. inputs are actually a good thing. Obviously, it might put some domestic producers of competing with us out of business, but I think we should be aware of just thinking that's a big problem in itself for more imports coming in. It's in, it's in fact quite important for a lot of industries. Yeah, no, that's, uh, that's correct. That's sort of the political economy of uh, trade openness uh, everywhere. Um, uh, we, we earlier touched on the question of the ecological impact. Uh, I think Rajkar was uh, the one who brought it up. Um, he said, it's something that we could uh, just comment as a, as a panel uh, once more. To, to what extent does ecology play into, you know, as part of this playbook and uh, is being taken into account in these calculations? So when I look at uh, what you... Um, you know, your calculations, Idil or uh, yours, uh, Roman, uh, or those of others like the, the World Bank's uh, study there, uh, to what extent does it take into account the, the ecological impact, the potential downside there, but perhaps the upside? So what Richard said, electrification uh, could be actually helpful here. Does ecology play, play into this um, into these scenarios. Uh, I don't know who would like to take that on, Dina. Many thanks. Uh, this is a very important question you brought. Um, actually, we also need to think of the environment, the people, uh, the pollution as well. Um, so recent news that um, Central Asia is planning, for example, green hydrogen production. And it's it's not uh, it's, it might be true that Kazakhstan will become world largest green hydrogen producer. It's possible. Uh, so if that happens, uh, then it will change. I think uh, the transport uh, can change a lot because uh, hydrogen gives uh, great advantage for large uh, trucks for transportation. Uh, they are clean. And um, the rock also, it's, it's what uh, Elvira mentioned, to have more added value because this will be local product. And uh, so it's not just one country plant, it's two countries for now, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan. Maybe four countries will join, for example, Kazakhstan has a uh, good possibility. And then, so th then uh, transport corridor could not only become more efficient, but also could become greener. 
there are other ways to make, uh, of course, corridor greener by, by just having uh, this custom border right crossing, which Edil mentioned, uh, to make it more efficient, make it faster. That's also good for environment, actually, because if cars stay long in a waiting line, that causes pollution. Like if you have a big traffic, you know, it's causes pollution. If you have more efficient ports, including Caspian Seaport, uh, railways, uh, cars, if they work more efficiently, so they also cause less pollution. Yeah, so there is lots of studies about seaports, but I think same applies. So if we can make, uh, so it's not only using green energy, but also about efficiency of transport. If transport can move faster, then it's also, we can say, environmental impact is here. And also, uh, for, for making this easy transportation, uh, you, we, we should remember that this transport road allows for transportation, for example, wind turbines, solar panels, and what Richard Comfort mentioned, easy access for goods, uh, to imported goods, and those would be... Um, uh, goods necessary for environment, like, for example, solar panels, uh, uh, wind turbines, maybe lithium-ion batteries, and so on. Um, so those, if, if transportation costs reduces, if they are accessible faster, uh, that also um, will make uh, the corridor, help, help to make corridor and countries uh, greener, in my view. Thank you. Yes, thanks, Dina. That, of course, also raises the question whether the energy transition, the transformation of the economies there itself might uh, drive uh, future trade patterns uh, and uh, and logistic patterns that uh, differ from what we, you know, what the planners thought uh, a couple of decades ago, and to what extent that is going to change to, to shape uh, thinking about the middle corridor in the future. So all very interesting stuff. Um, I wanted to ask uh, panelists uh, for like one last intervention, you each have uh, 30 seconds to tell us all what you think the the um, the focus ought to be for the uh, Central Asia, for the, um, the, the, the financiers, the, the um, MDBs, uh, uh, other players. Uh, what should be the, the focus uh, in the coming two, three years in order to make the middle corridor happen or better, uh, I take it, uh, it is happening, but to accelerate uh, the middle corridor. So from, from all that you see that is possible or not possible, uh, that is uh, that has high payoffs or, or less high payoffs, what is it that you, what's your message uh, to the world? Can I, can I start with you, Idil? Thank you, Hans. Um, you know, we are talking about short run. I think the key here is alignment of operational practices by the corridor countries. They need to come together and um, find shortcuts to enhance operational efficiency along the route before the window of opportunity closes for the middle corridor so that they can utilize benefiting from their existing network if they manage to align their structures and operations in ways that would support the users, I think that could still provide a good uh, good gain for the countries in the short run that they can build upon later. Great, thank you, Edith. Uh, what about you, Roman? 
Oh, thank you very much. I, I fully agree. Uh, we need to start with cheaper and this kind of non-heavy non financial uh, on financial side uh, activities. Uh, let me add to that other tr trade facilitation measures. Like, uh, well, we still have so many issues with customs, with borders, with uh, similar other similar issues. So that should be addressed. And secondly, uh, on logistic organization, let me mention that uh, the competitive environment should be created not only in comparison to other alternative routes, but also inside the corridor. So that's a way to, to drive costs down, really, to, to have some co competing providers of services uh, along the route. Thank you. Thank you, Roman. Dolores, what is your advice? I fully agree with my previous participants. And I also want to add that uh, we should also focus on integration of processes in the region and it should be political stability and and more effectiveness uh, using of transport potential uh, because uh, this transportation of goods from south or, west, or south or north or west or east, uh, it should be uh, also, more stability and effectiveness, uh, and uh, also it, it should uh, must must be some uh, common uh, joint uh, for other countries. And uh, I think it uh, it it be uh, work uh, what it will it will work well. As I can say in this way. Thank you. Thank you, Dolores. Uh, Rakha, what are your views? Your advice to everybody. <laughs> Well, thank you. I, I guess I will be a bit different in addition to everything that has been already said that uh, these countries in Central Asia has to pay attention to internal production for the, for example, the issue of uh, empty back holes to be eliminated. We have to have something to export and trade with other countries. I think that's the message I would like to make. So straightforward is here. We'll have something to actually forward and it will have a more sort of a process like a, a tiny process into the big uh, transport road to function. So basically for the countries to look into the internal production for something to have to sell and trade along the middle corridor. Right, uh, excellent. And, and there's a chicken and egg thing, right? So if there's, if there's potential, then you might uh, see investments stepping up in these areas. Exactly. Um, Dina, what's your recipe? Thank you very much. Yeah. As previous speakers mentioned, that it's important that countries, regions, organizations, that we all work together. Uh, so I would like to invite everyone, then let's let's uh, facilitate this uh, coordinated work. For example, at ADB, we have this CAREC program. And um, so I think it's important to help countries actually to give them this platform where they can join forces together and work together. Thank you. Thank you, Dina. And uh, Richard, you have uh, sort of the final word on the panel, uh, your recipe, but could you also give us a sense of where uh, where research can make a contribution? Uh, or do we know everything already and it's just about the action at this point? Nobody knows everything. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, I, I agree very much with the comment that we've just heard. I mean, I agree with Radka that if um, the Central Asian countries do want to improve living standards and so on, which is the ultimate goal, then it really depends on domestic reforms to make it easier to do business. But also, 
the any new developments are going to have to be more export oriented. Domestic markets are too small, so trade facilitation matters, and that's where the corridors come in. Um, clear the soft infrastructure is really important of regulatory co cohesion and having um, regional coordination. I think Central Asia is lucky in that CARAC has been developed. That's a great forum, particularly the Customs Committee, I think, for di for discussing these things. So I see a lot of this is positive. Specifically on the middle corridor, I'd say um, not to become too concerned about which exact route is going to be do dominant, because I think the middle corridor will survive. Alternatives are good and flexibility is good. And where you'll be in the future might depend on a lot of things that are outside the region. What happens in Russia? What happens in Iran? What happens in China? These are really big unknowns, I think. Great. Those are the, those are the known unknowns, at least. <laughs> Thank you, Richard. Now, um, of course, I should have... Uh, I shouldn't have said that you're the last uh, panelist to speak because we're, there's Elvira on my side and I wanted to ask Elvira uh, where where she sees sort of the research uh, needs as well in this area. Uh, what is it that think tanks can contribute uh, in this space in the coming years? Yes, of course. Uh here in ODI, we work a lot on how global shocks affect um, the economies in the world. And um, from here, we can see that, yes, there was a global shock, uh, which has affected um, the um, efficiency of the middle corridor. And we see more um, transportation going from Europe um, to Asia, which kind of contributed to opportunities for um, some countries in the region. But more research should be done in the area of supply chains, how these are being recalibrated, what are the dependencies of some countries in some supply chains on some inputs um, on other regions and how that affects uh, production and, and we've mentioned nearshoring, offshoring and what will that mean for other regions and what opportunities and risks that opens up for other countries. Great. Well, thank you. I'm, I don't think it's really necessary to try to summarize because we've all been summarizing in many different ways now. Uh, and uh, it's important for, for me, what sticks is the, the fact that we should see the middle corridor, not primarily as a transcontinental uh, solution here, uh, even though it has its place there, uh, but as a regional solution uh, as well. And that that's a, an important focus to give it. Uh, the countries of the region, uh, according to all the, the, <clears throat> the research that we've seen here, the countries of the region have an enormous interest in making the middle corridor work uh, for themselves. It's not just uh, in order to enable smooth trade between China and Europe, but for themselves and as an opportunity for internal integration. And so the, the much of the onus is really on the countries of the region here. Um, and uh, also what strikes me is that uh, nobody disagrees about what needs to happen. Uh, this is uh, there's quite a clear agenda here. Uh, it's about bringing it together. So the governance question, very important, could be at the center of it. Can countries agree to, to develop a, a common governance mechanism, uh, which then uh, kind of uh, produces its own agenda of, of change that would follow. Uh, the other dimension is the financing dimension. Uh, always uh, very helpful to have financing available. It's, it sharpens minds, it makes uh, things possible that uh, previously didn't seem to be possible. So uh, the 
multilateral development banks, uh, the EU, China, with their respective programs, uh, are very important players in this uh, as partners of the Central Asians. But I think, again, uh, none of this is going to happen if uh, the Central Asian countries don't drive it themselves and see their very, very own interest in making this possible. I find the various dimensions of uncertainty, uh, yeah, interesting is sort of a word. Uh, uh, it's we, we see it, uh, I think many of us have said that now, uh, as the least vulnerable route. Um, every route, every trade route has its vulnerabilities. One benefit of the middle corridor is that it adds resilience. So we, we, we heard this about the perspective, especially of, of China. Uh, but still, even within, even being relatively um, more resilient, uh, it's facing a, a bunch of un, of, uh, of questions of uncertainties, and technology is one of those. So the the ecology question that Ratha uh, Ratha put on the table is important in its own right, but it's also important uh, as um, uh, as a uh, sort of technology scenario that is evolving and that we're seeing evolve and that is going to change um, the parameters here. It's going to change comparative advantage uh, and uh, may end up shaping uh, transport and logistics solutions for the region as well. It's an interesting one. Uh, plus, of course, all the political uncertainties, the the, uh, the questions of Iran, the questions of the Northern Corridor, etc. Those all play in. Uh, so uh, uncertainty, potential uh, uncertainty, cooperation, uh, cost of capital, those are uh, uh, big areas. At ODI, we very much intend to um, to uh, continue uh, working on this, on the middle corridor, on, on connectivity solutions uh, in Asia. We, we feel that that's one of the big questions uh, for the economy of the future. Uh, so we're going to be uh, involved in there. We know that uh, our colleagues at ADBI are involved and we want to, to do this uh, together. Um, we would uh, very much uh, appreciate collaboration with others uh, on this call, uh, the multilateral development banks, um, uh, Richard uh, and, uh, and other researchers who have looked at this, the institutes in the region. Uh, we know Kazakhstan has really developed a great uh, intellectual capacity in these areas. So um, let's think a bit about how uh, collaboration also on the intellectual side can, can help to provide uh, support and a framework for this, uh, what we all understand is, is a huge potential for these countries and for the world. So with, uh, with that, uh, happy note. <laughs> uh, let me conclude unless I have uh, overlooked something, Elvira. Let me conclude with this panel and thank everyone. This was uh, fantastic. You've all been great and very responsive. So hopefully to future events of this sort, we certainly intend to stay in this space. Bye-bye, everyone. Thank you. Bye.